Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 171, The Log and the Speck. And on the podcast this week, I would like us to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, in what is a fairly familiar passage to many people, both inside and outside the church. And that's the one that begins with, Judge not that you be not judged. And so today, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about judgment. I want to talk about condemnation. And I want to talk about it directly as it relates to um, Christians in particular, those disciples of Jesus, those citizens of Jesus's kingdom, who are the target group that Jesus is speaking to when he speaks these words in Matthew 7. And so I have several thoughts that I'm going to read through. I'd like to look at a handful of passages from the New Testament that deal with this issue of condemnation and judging. And then I want to share with you a few words from Dallas Willard from his book, The Divine Conspiracy. I plan to read some sections of Willard's book over the next several weeks on the podcast as we're tackling kind of this same topic through at least the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 7. And I'll explain more of that in the weeks to come and how I see these verses held together with the same theme. But this is a big one. This is one, as I'll get into, I think um, misses the the eye. It, um, it does not capture the imagination of Christians the way it should. And this one sometimes stands out in stark shock to many Christians when they really step into it and evaluate what it is that Jesus is actually saying. And so uh, there is so much that could be said about this passage. I don't think I'll say anywhere near all of it today on the podcast, but we may spend a few weeks here because this is so, so important. And so without any more of an introduction, let's just get right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, as I said in the introduction, this potentially is one of the most famous sections in the Bible. Um, I do think that this is pretty commonly known both inside and outside the church. And one of the reasons why it's known so well to those outside the church is because many people outside the church have felt the judgment of Christians and like the opportunity they have to use a passage back toward a Christian they feel is judging them to remind those same Christians that it's not their place to judge. And I'm not always here to pick on Christians, but since Jesus spends the majority of his time speaking to those who have chosen to follow him, I find it perfectly at home to spend the majority of my time 
doing the same thing. And so in the same way that Jesus directly speaks to those who've chosen to give up all to follow him, I think we can spend a disproportionate amount of our time doing the same thing. And in that in that case, and, and I've met people who fit this description, in that in the case of those who quote this passage back to Christians, it's a little bit of an indictment on the Christian church that oftentimes from the perspective of those outside the church, judgment and condemnation is what people expect to receive from Christians. And that is unbelievably sad, terribly unfortunate, and it stems in large part from us, I think, missing what Jesus is actually talking about here. And so his passage has several parts. The first is as a simple explanation of not to judge or we will be judged. And Jesus doesn't say in this passage whether he is talking about judgment coming from God our way or whether this is simply judgment coming from other people. And in many ways, we aren't really asked or invited to make a distinction there because both, in fact, can be happening all the time. If you mistreat a particular person because you have overly judgmental or critical attitudes toward them, do not be shocked or surprised when they return the favor. This is a normal part of human nature. This is a reason why we have generational gaps today where the young don't respect the old and the old think that the young um, don't have anything to offer society and people end up hovering around their own people group, their own demographic, and they criticize demographics um, who are unlike them in some way. That feeds off of itself. And years and years and decades and decades, whole groups, whole societies end up looking with disdain upon another group because all they've experienced from that group is judgment or is condemnation. And so what Jesus shifts into here is he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he talks about the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure you use will be measured to you. Meaning, the way you treat people, you can expect to be treated by them in the same way. This is, in some sense, the reverse of the, the, the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Treat your neighbor the way you want them, um, that you would want to be treated, but also treat your neighbor in the same way that you treat yourself. This is actually saying treat your neighbor the way you would want them to treat you. So, And we'll get to that in verse 12 of Matthew 7 here in several weeks. So what I want to do is just pose several questions right at the beginning. Um, judging another person without knowing all the facts, is that the way you would like to be judged? Or deciding that another person should know better and therefore you have a reason to be angry with them or disappointed or to let them know how much they've failed is that the way you would like to be judged? Or deciding that another person or deciding that you know what another person deserves, right? Their actions have led them to a particular set of consequences and you feel entitled or you feel in the know to be able to be the one to distribute those consequences. Deciding what another person deserves, is that the way that you 
would want to be judged? You see, Jesus is putting together something here for us, which I think is tremendously necessary. He spent two chapters already, or chapters as we see them. Jesus is simply giving a discourse on the side of a hill. But he's spoken about things, as we've said in chapter 5, that should be present in the life of a disciple, but oftentimes um, uh, oftentimes aren't. And then things that and then in chapter 6, he's talking about things that, that should be present and oftentimes are, but he's actually looking at the motives of what those things happen to be, right? Like prayer and fasting and, and giving of tithes. But this passage here speaks toward, hey, what if you arrive at a particular place where you see the actions that you are doing or not doing, and you see the energy and the, the resolve that you're putting forth in order to live the way that Jesus is calling you to live, it seems only natural, at least as it pertains to our world and sadly also in the church, that we would feel justified in judging other people who don't live up to the same standards as well as we do. This is, in fact, a very, very normal part of our world. It's looking at a person, deciding that their actions require a certain type of consequence, and us eagerly being the ones who've appointed ourselves to determine what those consequences are. And so what I have seen over the years, having been a pastor for nearly 20 years, is that many Christians not only feel perfectly at home in judging others— um, sadly, though, mostly those outside the church, but they actually find themselves firmly convinced that doing so is one of our main tasks as Christians. They have gotten the idea into their minds that to be salt and light from Matthew five thirteen to 16 means that it's somehow their job to point out the failings of other people and then to treat them as they imagine God one day will with judgment, threats, ostracization, and condemnation. One, one super clear example of this in our culture are those Christians who see the need to police the morality of other people. Every election cycle, Christians seem to rally around this idea with more and more gusto and convince other Christians that the way God is going to do his best work is when they vote in the candidate that will make immorality illegal. They talk and act as this as if this is their sole purpose on earth and the only right way to act as a Christian in society. What I have found is that these same Christians then are completely baffled when they arrive at a passage like Matthew 7 and come face to face with Jesus forbidding them to do this. He forbids them to judge others. Well, then what are we supposed to do? not say anything? Does this mean that we aren't supposed to have any standards? Is Jesus telling us that we're just supposed to let sin go unjudged? Now, I've been asked these very questions myself numerous times. And as a result, it's become really strange to me just how far off we've veered from life in the kingdom. A life that Jesus insists should be free of judgment. So is Jesus suggesting then that we have no standards? No, not at all. What he's saying is that our focus should be disproportionately directed toward ourselves when it comes to upholding standards and critiquing the sin 
that is present in our world. You see, kingdom citizens look at the world in an entirely different way. When it comes to standards of righteousness and the presence of sin, kingdom citizens take Jesus' understanding of righteousness, i.e. everything he's spoken about to this point in his sermon, and realize just how far they personally are from embodying this. With a focus on righteousness rooted in the heart, there really is only one person whose heart we have intimate knowledge of, our own. And therefore, this is where the bulk of our focus should be. But in the infinite wisdom of so many people today, we ignore Jesus' teaching here entirely. We seem to know so much better than Jesus does. We've decided that the real problem people of our world are those other people. They are the ones ruining our otherwise good world or ruining our country or whatever we say to ourselves. And as a result, we find it quite natural and reasonable to judge them, to criticize them, to point out their sins, to speak negatively about them, and to imagine that when they straighten out their lives, then our world will become a better place. Now, the main trouble with this mindset is that it is impossible to both love someone and judge them at the same time. And Jesus has been more than clear at just this point. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What so many people fail to recognize is the absolute destruction that judgment has on our world and in the lives of those who live in it. Treating another person as if their sins make them beneath you or somehow disqualified from being in your presence or expecting good things in this life without without knowing anything about them, what they are going through, what they've been through, why they do what they do, or how hard they're working to overcome these things is a perspective that we simply do not have. Oh, but it's so much fun to judge. It's so easy. It feels like the right thing to do. And we say to ourselves and to anyone who else will listen that we are doing it to help other people. After all, we say we don't want them to experience the wrath of God one day. And so we offer ourselves as the solution to their problem. Let us help you. We see everything so much more clearly than you do and we can give you the guidance you need. Never mind that most of the people we offer this help to have never asked for it, and more particularly, have never asked for it from us. Oh, but we're the experts, and everyone else would see that if they weren't so blinded by their sin. This is the way many Christians talk or at the very least, the way many of them come across to others. And it's both ironic and sad that when it comes to those who can see in these verses and those who cannot, it's the followers of Jesus who have an entire log obstructing their view compared to just a speck in the other person's eye. The image is actually quite comical. Jesus is saying that the first step necessary if we want to offer help to another person is to recognize that we have a plank in our own eye and to spend the necessary time and energy required to remove it. 
Now, if you've ever been around woodworking, you know that both logs and specks come from the same thing. You can think of specks like tiny pieces of sawdust or little splinters that have broken off of a log. In other words, the issues we seem to be laser-focused on in others, nine times out of ten are issues we ourselves deal with and that are still unresolved in us. And many times, we know it. We then engage in a seemingly harmless practice of projection, where we project onto others unresolved issues in our own lives. And then when we punish those people for the presence of that issue in their lives, we get this sense of satisfaction that the sin is being dealt with. And that makes us feel good because we intrinsically know that the presence of those issues need to be dealt with. We just find that it's much easier to deal with it in others than in ourselves. And we feel that when we criticize that issue in others, then we are taking it seriously. And we've convinced ourselves that doing so is somehow being righteous. The trouble is, what oftentimes gives us eagle eyes to see that issue in another person is the fact that we deal with it ourselves and have not found a way to be free of it. I don't know if this will resonate with you, but I cannot get away from thinking about this particular illustration of it. In modern day political partisan conversation, the Christians who tend to side with um, a particular uh, conservative uh, Republican party tend to identify in this moral policing of society sins that revolve around sexuality. Um, if you've noticed, we, we deal with issues of abortion, we deal with issues of same-sex marriage, and we talk a lot about transgenderism. These are the issues that seem to capture the hearts of many conservative um, Christians that I know of. And what's interesting is they all have to do with sex. They all have to do with one's sexuality or getting pregnant, and then that leads to abortion. It's very interesting to me that in a discussion of sex, which tends to be taboo in the church, and something that is highly um, has been highly destructive within the church as well, manages in the political eye to be the number one issue that Christians seem to be concerned with. I'd like to submit to you that as an entire Christian subculture, we've projected a broken sexuality that we ourselves possess onto a culture because we know that we ought to target those kinds of broken issues in our world. And we feel good about that fight for righteousness and fight for sexual purity in our world because we know we ought to fight for it. And yet we aren't fighting for it as it relates to the log that's in our own eye. Instead, we've decided to elevate the speck that is in our brother's eye to the exclusion of the log in our own and have put ourselves forward as the people who know best how to help a society become pure when we ourselves are impure. And I speak having been raised in what was coined purity culture movement. 
it was this idea that faithful, um, you know, not sex before marriage and focus on making sure that girls dress in a way that does not cause young men to have issues. And when I walked through this section in Matthew 5, where Jesus puts the responsibility on the one lusting to stop lusting, not on the girl that he claims is causing him to lust, the church has taught this entirely backwards for 20 straight years and is now reaping serious consequences from that. Jesus is calling the church to look at the log in their own eye before ever claiming to be the ones put in a position to offer help and aid for people with specks in their own eyes. And this is an issue that has surfaced to such staggering proportions, it's almost unfathomable. It's almost unfathomable how far we have, we have veered off course from Jesus's plain teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and have decided that we're going to call our actions righteous when in fact they might be the exact opposite. What is Jesus telling us? He is telling us to learn to deal with the issues in ourselves first, because until we do, we will never bring the compassion and understanding necessary to our brother to properly help him or her deal with the same thing in their life. And it is the presence of compassion and understanding that makes the kingdom of heaven a kingdom unlike any other. Now, there are several passages in the New Testament that I think are important to bring up at just this point. The first shows up in John chapter 3, and I, I, I haven't gone through every passage here. These were the ones that came to mind while I was preparing this, and I have four of them. The first is John three seventeen to 21, and yes, this is the passage that is part of the most quoted verse in the Bible, and that is John 3.16. So if Matthew 7 is, is pretty well known, which I think it is, John 3.16, I'm pretty confident, is even more well known. But you know how it begins. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, I wish that for every person who knew John 3.16 and could quote it to you just like I did, would know verses 17 through 21 because it's all part of the same paragraph and yet it oftentimes doesn't get quoted. But here it is, and I won't quote it. I'll read it to you, but this is verses 17 to 21. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, in verse 17 of the passage I just read, we're told that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Now, if God didn't even send Jesus 
to condemn the world? What makes his people think that he's given them that job? This is fascinating to me. And what does he say? He says that the judgment is already here, that the people stand condemned already. They don't need to be added into any more of that condemnation by expressing it from us. And here's the reason why this is so important. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the judgment is this, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now, he's not saying that he's here to tell people that they are judged. He doesn't. He says, this is the light. Here is the presence of real righteousness. Here is the presence of kingdom life. If this is something you want and you see it as valuable, you are welcome to step into that and be free of all of the darkness in the way that it rules your life. If you don't want that, that is the judgment. Living in perpetual darkness apart from a life of freedom is the judgment. He says it in verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I want you to understand this. The people in choosing not to embrace the light are judging themselves. They're judging themselves. They are judging their own lives as something that is already fine with them apart from life lived in freedom. Here's the worst part of it all. You ready? When Christians themselves who now claim to be people who are living in freedom bring condemnation onto others, we are teaching those people that to become a Christian means to have this sense of entitlement or a sense of condemnation. What, what is that inviting people into at all? We're trying to what? Invite people into the, to the Christian way so that they no longer feel condemned? Like what, what, are we, what are we actually saying here? And I know this might sound confusing because Paul will say later in Romans 8, there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is absolutely important. But it's not just a matter of, oh, well, I was outside of Christ and now God hated me and now I'm inside Christ and now God loves me. This is a teaching that gets circulated somehow um, within Christian circles, but it, it absolutely doesn't make any sense. God is not here to hate you. He's not here to condemn you. He specifically says this. He sent Jesus into the world because he loves the world. We are caught in the traps of our own making, the condemnation that we feel entitled to dish out to other people. This is the darkness that Jesus is talking about rooting out of the world. And yet when Christians ignore Matthew 7, what we are actually doing is basically what he said at the end of chapter 6, and that is calling light darkness and imagining that this is what we're supposed to do. If the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Here's the trouble. If we as Christians think that condemning others and judging others and criticizing others and calling them sinners is being light in the world, how terribly great is our darkness? Because the darkness is still happening. We are now perpetuating darkness onto the world and calling it light and wondering why people don't like us. That should not be 
to be in a relationship with God, to be justified by his blood in the kingdom means that we are not accepted or rejected based upon anything that we do, but rather on who Jesus is. What that means is that we don't look at other people based upon how well we are doing at living righteously and feel superior to them because we're doing a better job of it than they are. That would mean that our place in the kingdom is securely rooted in our own goodness or our own obedience or our own righteousness, which we know factually is untrue. So when there is a hint of judgment or condemnation or superiority coming from Christian people, it is the most ironic and, um, ironic's the wrong word for it. What am I looking for? I'm looking for a word that's, that I'm drawing a blank on. It should never happen. It should never, ever happen. And so what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 4? This is a third passage that I'd like to bring to your attention. Here's what Paul says. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, this passage to me is fascinating, right? What does Paul say? It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul's like, I'm not going to take condemnation from you. You don't think that I stand up to what you expected an apostle would look like, as he'll oftentimes battle with the Corinthians. In fact, they turn their back on Paul later, which requires the writing of the book we know as 2 Corinthians, because they were drawn to these super apostles or these very eloquent men who taught in such a way that they promised the life of those who faithfully followed God would look much different than Paul's life. And Paul knew that people were judging him and criticizing him because of all the terrible things that were happening to him in his life. And here he's saying, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. He's like, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but not because of that, that I'm acquitted. It doesn't mean that just because I don't see any fault in my own doesn't mean that I don't have fault. He's just like, that job doesn't belong to me. It is the Lord who judges me. So what is Paul doing? Paul pulls out stakes that are way worse. He says, I'm not concerned whether you judge me. I'm not concerned whether a human court judges me. I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything in my life that's bad. But even if I was aware that or or the fact that my life was perfectly free of all wrongdoing, that doesn't make me innocent. I'm not the judge and neither are you. So you judging me doesn't matter. Me judging me doesn't matter. And me judging you certainly doesn't matter. It's the Lord who judges me. And so what does he say to them? Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Now we're right back to the Sermon on the Mount. 
Because disclosing the purposes of the heart is something that you and I simply will never know going on in the heart of another person. Jesus does talk later about the fruit, you know, you will recognize them by their fruit. And we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about the place for discernment and being able to determine things based on external observation, but to judge another person, to condemn them, to wish upon them certain judgment as a result of their actions is to play a role that is given only to God. So he says, when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. He's the one that does it, not you and not me. And finally, in verse or in Galatians chapter six, Paul says this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Now, if we take the spirit behind what Jesus is saying, he relates this to how are you able to remove a speck from your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye? And then he just says, you hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly how to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Again, we talked about sometimes the log and the speck are the same thing. They're just in different proportion. In fact, I think that the disproportionate amount of our time ought to be focused on our own selves such that we recognize the compassion and the patience and the kindness that Jesus offers to us, which gives us the freedom to work through these things in the process that it takes us through. And then it deepens our compassion and kindness and patience with someone else working through the same problem. And so Paul offers to people, if anyone is caught in any transgression, now Paul Paul uses interesting language here, right? It's not if anybody is deliberately sinning, right? He's saying you're caught in a transgression. It is possible that people are doing the wrong thing and they're caught there. They, they, they don't know how to get free. So what does he say? You who are spiritual, right, should tell them that they're doing what's wrong. You who are spiritual should judge them. You who are spiritual should critique them, should criticize them, should call them out, should shame them. That tends to be the knee-jerk response of many religious people. But Paul doesn't say that at all. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, Restore, restoration is the goal. The goal is not condemnation. The goal is not rejection. The goal is not isolation. The goal is not shame. The goal is always restoration. How does one go about restoring a person who is caught? He does so in a spirit of gentleness. But then listen to what Paul says. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, we don't know exactly what Paul means by being tempted, but I can think of several things off the top of my head. Number one, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted and you fall victim to the same type of struggle that this person you're trying to help is dealing with. But the second thing you could be tempted by is this idea that you are somehow above them because you're not struggling with that sin. I've seen this happen too. 
I've seen people who might use the right language. They might, they might talk the right things. They might quote the right verses. But man, when they talk to you about what's going on in your life, you just feel their rejection. You just feel their superiority. You just feel beneath them. And the way that they talk to you and the way that they look at you and the way you perceive their thinking about you just communicates to you that they are soaking in a position of self-righteousness over and against you. They're not watching themselves. They're being tempted and they're giving, they're giving full weight right now to this spirit of condemnation. So what does Paul say? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ reading through with Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy, and he either did his own translation or pulled a different translation out. I, I didn't know he didn't list it this way, so this might be his own translation. But he takes verse 2 that says, bear one another's burdens, and he says, feel the weight others are feeling, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is so much more different than just telling a person that what they're doing is wrong and that they're going to be judged for it. This is stepping in. This is feeling the weight. This is carrying it with another person, which is why Paul says, bear one another's burdens. Because he says in verse three, then if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is to me goes right back to the self-righteousness. What if you think you think that you've got an eagle eye ability to see the real problems that another person is dealing with. And oh, how lucky they are that you are now going to be the one to shine light on their path forward. You know, it's amazing to me when that becomes the mindset. These people now think they're something. I'm, I'm, I'm the answer person. I'm the person who can solve your problem. I'm the person who can tell you the right steps to take. Wow, look at me. Look what great contributions I'm making for the kingdom. What does Paul say in verse four? But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. In other words, at the end of the day, you're not gonna be able to walk away and be like, look at that person that I helped. Look at that life that's so much better now as a result of my influence. You're not gonna be doing that at all. You're not gonna be boasting about them and what you've been able to do to help change their life your reason to boast is going to be in yourself alone. Here's how God has shown his mercy to me. Here's how Jesus has helped me navigate through this challenging situation in my own life where I failed time and time and time again. But he rescued me. He taught me. He humbled me. He kept me in his grasp so that I could gain victory over this and let me offer to you what he offered to me. I'd love to try to help you. That's something very, very different. And when that person gets freedom, you know it wasn't you. You're not going to be boasting about how much you helped that person because you know very well Jesus did that, not you. I think that's what Paul is getting at. And so Dallas Willard just gives a several, I mean, I wrote a bunch of notes down. I just want to read for you several sentences, a couple paragraphs actually that he that he wrote, and then we will touch on this again because he does he does tackle uh, Matthew seven one to twelve all all together as a unit, which I think is correct. And I'm going to take some of his line of thinking. I, I do look at some of the sections a little differently than him, but I might do a little ping pong between my own understanding as well as Willard's. 
Um, not that I'm right by any stretch. It's just the way it makes the most sense to me. But here's what Dallas Willard says. Um, I just want to read for you a few things uh, about what he says, and then we'll kind of wrap this up. In the first 12 verses of Matthew 7, Jesus deals with the deadly way in which we try to manage or control those closest to us by blaming and condemning them and by forcing upon them our wonderful solutions for their problems. (laughs) I just, Willard is great. He's just great. If you don't have the divine conspiracy yet, um, do yourself a favor and go buy it. We have great confidence, Willard says, in the power of condemnation to straighten others out. I want to stop here for just a second. I I do believe that what Jesus is inviting us to consider is the power that love has in the kingdom to restore others. Our world, however, functions just like Willard is saying. We have great confidence in the power of condemnation to straighten others out. And we feel like that's what's going to do it. If we condemn people enough, if we criticize them enough, If we show them how stupid they are, if we show them how foolish they are, if we show them how wrong they are, they're going to turn and they'll respond. Kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom in this world has shown that to not work. It's time for Christians to embody the kingdom of God, which believes in the power of love to restore, not in the power of condemnation to straighten others out. All right, back to Willard, couple paragraphs. If as Christians often say, we really are different as followers of Christ, this is a point where it should be most obvious. How does Jesus know that those who judge in the sense of condemning others are hypocrites Is it merely that there must be something wrong with us because there is something wrong with everyone and that we should not condemn others until we are perfect? Is it just the let him who is without sin cast the first stone routine? No, that's not it. Rather, it is because he understands what condemnation is and involves. Condemnation is the log in our eye. Jesus knows that the mere fact that we are condemning someone shows our heart does not have the kingdom rightness he has been talking about. Condemnation, especially with its usual accompaniments of anger and contempt and self-righteousness, blinds us to the reality of the other person. We cannot see clearly how to assist our brother because we cannot see our brother. And we will never know how to truly help him until we have grown into the kind of person who does not condemn, period. Getting the log out is not a matter of correcting something that is wrong in our life so that we will be able to condemn our dear ones better or more effectively, so to speak. Getting the log out is the way that we go about recognizing our own brokenness and fallenness in this world so that we can rightly set others free. That's really what this podcast is all about. It kind of has that as one of its main thrusts. And many of you who've listened to several of these episodes know that that's the case. 
I think we've dug ourselves into a deep hole. And I think over the generations and over the decades, the way Christians have mishandled the teaching in Matthew 7 and have given ourselves full vent to rightly or wrongfully, but we think rightly, judge other people is why today the church is rapidly losing respect from the culture. We want to call it persecution for righteousness sake. I think Jesus would say, the measure you use, it's going to be measured to you. You want people to unfairly judge you. You want people from a distance to stand back and look at you and say, you have nothing to offer. You are just a bunch of hypocrites. Well, have you been teaching that by your actions and by your words over the generations? I would argue that large portions of the church have done that and that we are reaping precisely what we've sown. This is why Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is so doggone important. Because if we do not follow what he is saying, if we do not realize that this is the light that he's called people out of, we'll have to make a decision at some point. Jesus is calling condemnation of other people darkness. Many Christians have chosen to call that being salt and light. If we are calling something light that Jesus is calling darkness, then we are in an incredibly precarious position. It's no wonder that the world in large part is rejecting what the church is offering. Jesus would reject it too. He is in fact calling us rather to a life of living in the light. And a life lived in the light means that we bring to the light our own brokenness and shortcomings and logs way more frequently than we try to bring other people's darkness into the light. We know that when we are free of the things that plague us, it will reduce the kind of projection we will be so tempted to, you know, you know, flash onto other people, lay, lay across them and expect them to handle for us. But it will free us to be the compassionate, understanding, compassionate, gentle people who are spiritually mature enough to care deeply about another person such that we befriend them engage them in relationship, have them to our homes for meals and get to know them. In short, we will treat the people that are oftentimes ostracized and rejected by the religious community in the same way Jesus taught them or treated them. It's, it's staggering, but he literally is showing us the way to draw people in. And I think one of the main reasons why Jesus had such critique and such harsh, um, blunt ways of approaching the Pharisees is because that's precisely how the Pharisees treated everyone else. And when Jesus says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, do not judge or you too will be judged. He is giving the Pharisees a taste of their own reality. And that is part of the way he seeks to set people free from this. You know what this feels like and it doesn't feel good. So stop doing this to other people. You would hate it 
If somebody looked at you and held over you some standard that you chose that you didn't agree with, that you didn't understand, but they just walked around thinking they were doing their God's work by accusing you, criticizing you, and threatening you with certain judgment as a result of these actions you participated in. Can you imagine how we would respond if that was the case? We wouldn't want to talk to those people. We wouldn't want to be around those people. They're not inviting. Nobody wants to spend their time with someone who is constantly pointing out to them what they are doing that's unacceptable. So explain to me how that makes any sense for Christians to do. Why is it that Jesus oftentimes created arguments and fights with religious people, but it was the non-religious people who loved him? It was those who were rejected who flocked to him. It was those who were alone who loved him. It was those who were not welcomed into the community who loved and spent time with Jesus. I feel like it's backwards today. And I'm not only saying this so that I critique us and I I pick on us as Christians or anything like that. I, I feel like when we talk this way, It's our way of saying we've got a much bigger log in our eye than we know. And man, we would be able to see the world a whole lot better if we could first take that out of our eye. As I said, the image is kind of comical because you see this big two by four sticking out of a person's, you know, um, eye and imagining they're not going to be any good to help anybody. There's no way in the world you can't see through something that thick. And then you imagine in comparison It's a little speck in someone else's eye and it's a little irritating to them. It might be irritating and you want to offer them your help, but at least you have to first remove what's blocking you from being able to see clearly so that you can actually help them. And so next week, I want to continue this conversation. I want to talk about the very next verse and I want to talk about what, why then Jesus says, okay, so yeah, do we throw all standards out the window? Like, are we not to have discernment as Christians? That seems to be actually something that Proverbs talks quite a lot about. Are we just supposed to throw discernment out entirely? And the answer is no. There are times to be discerning. But as Paul says in Galatians 6, to do it in, in a spirit of gentleness and not in a spirit of, of superiority or self-righteousness. And we'll talk about what that means. We'll talk about how to look into a situation and see something that we we say, is this me being critical and judgmental or is this me seeing something that I think might need to be brought up? And if it is something that needs to be brought up, how do I go about bringing that up? I think that's a fantastic question. And I hope you're asking that. If you aren't, maybe I'll I'll encourage you to, and, and we'll talk about it next week and maybe even the week after. So that is all the time we have this week for the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Got a great response this week from someone who is just a couple episodes behind and was encouraged to listen in. And and I I love hearing from you as listeners. So um, if you haven't emailed me in a while, please feel free to do so. Send me a message on Facebook or Instagram, and um, hopefully we can connect through what you're thinking about and what's happening in your own life. But our, our call as Christians for this week is to set judgment aside so that we might fully be people who can love our neighbors and our enemies. So I hope you have a fantastic week and I will talk to you next time. You've been listening to Unbinding the Bible. If you find these episodes valuable and you haven't already done so, 
please leave a rating or review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these episodes. And then go and share one or more of your favorite episodes with a friend. You can also reach out to Joshua with any comments or questions to unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.